Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Carmel Valley Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Corey Shockey, Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of her talk is Defense Policy Challenges for the Next President, and it was recorded on May 6, 2016. So, my friends, it is a pleasure to be back with you. Um, several people asked me whether I had good news to impart, so I'll tell you right off the bat, I actually don't. Um, that what I was hoping to do today, though, is to um, have a conversation about some of the main defense challenges that we're facing. Many of them are foreign policy challenges, but a couple of them are domestic policy challenges. And um, most of them are about negative developments in the world. Uh, that my main point to you today is that the threats and risks associated with America's involvement in the world are increasing, but the resources we are putting towards it are not. And we need to do something about that. Did I accurately hit the? Yes. Monitor on the lower left. Yes, so I can see it. Um, but that, sh that is not the right first slide. <laughs> that should be slide two. So um, let's start at the beginning. I want to start by talking about Iran, because as any of you who read President Obama's interviews in the Atlantic magazine, a really extraordinary set of interviews that he gave, um, the president is extraordinarily proud of the nuclear agreement that we've reached with Iran. And so one way of measuring whether this agreement is making us safer or not is to judge Iranian behavior in the aftermath of the agreement. And I think it's safe to say that Iran's behavior has actually become more worrisome since the agreement has been signed. The... Uh, the Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, questioned why the United States has any military presence in the region and threatened to close the Straits of Hormuz, through which most of the oil passes, last week. Uh, Iran has, as you can see from the chart, a really impressive ballistic missile program. No other country has ever developed ballistic missiles of this range uh, without having a nuclear weapons program to marry those missiles up to. Uh, the head of the IRGC has said, I'm quoting him now, Iran will decisively confront any menacing passage through the Straits of Hormuz. We warn the Americans not to repeat their past mistakes. My assessment of why it is that the Iranians are behaving so erratically uh, is that they actually expected results from the nuclear agreement that they're not getting. In particular, the results they expected were economic. And uh, while President Obama takes a lot of credit for the sanctions regime that was put in place against Iran, it is important to remember that Congress did it. Congress did it over the president's objections and over the objections of the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, who believed that the sanctions that Congress put in place would spoil the negotiations. What's happening now, uh, Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif said two days ago 
that the United States has a responsibility in because of the nuclear agreement to make clear that banks can lend to Iran. Um, so, so that's their objection, that they, that they had been anticipated that they might get as much as $150 billion in Iranian assets that had been frozen since the revolution or in new opportunities for doing business. Um, in fact, uh, the nearest estimate, the best estimate that I have seen is that the Iranians have gotten about $5 billion dollars. Uh, and the Supreme Court, as you may have noticed, our Supreme Court, as you may have noticed last week, uh, came to a conclusion that frozen Iranian assets in the United States may legally be used to pay dispensation to families who have been victims of Iranian terrorism. Uh, the Iranians complained to the UN Secretary General about this American action. Uh, Congress has also been in on the act. Uh, three members of the House of Representatives sent a pretty threatening letter to the CEO of Boeing telling him that if they think that they can sell airplanes and airplane parts to the Iranians, they will uh, have a difficult time bidding on U.S. defense contracts. Boeing, the major provider of American military aircraft. Uh, Congress also passed a resolution uh, condemning Iran's uh, taking sailors hostages, which also happened after the agreement was signed. Um, so the Iran portfolio is getting more brittle and, and more difficult to, uh, to manage as a result of the agreement. One of the reasons it's more difficult to manage is that all of America's allies in the Middle East opposed the agreement and have a sense of bad faith that their concerns weren't addressed more, um, more seriously. Now we get to the second slide, uh, which takes us to Iraq. Uh, many of you will remember that the American military had advocated leaving 30,000 troops in Iraq in 2010 when we began to wind down our presence there. Um, and uh, President Obama... Uh, felt very strongly that the tide of war was receding and that we needed to end our military involvement in Iraq. There was the notion that you would have a huge civilian surge, right, an embassy with a 1,000 people working at it, and that you could make soft power the way we handle our relationships in the region. Uh, what has happened in the interim is that the Iraqi military has not proved capable of keeping security in the country, Moreover, they have, as that picture shows, just had to redeploy a lot of troops from the fight against ISIS to Baghdad because the prime minister is concerned. And the reason he's concerned is that Iranians, excuse me, Iraqis stormed the parliament, tore down the big blast walls to the green zone last weekend, and stormed the parliament. Um, the United States has now more than 5,000 troops in Iraq and Syria. 5,000 military forces in Iraq and Syria. And the White House, as recently as yesterday, uh, in commenting on the death of an American serviceman uh, in Syria, uh, is still unwilling to say that we are engaged in combat in Iraq or in Syria. Uh, moreover, the Iraqis are no closer to the kind of political cooperation that will make Sunni feel secure enough that they cease to support the Islamic State. 
What we are actually seeing on the ground in Iraq is Sunni from areas that have been liberated from control of the Iraqi state actually migrating to where the Iraqi state is in control. You all understand how barbaric the the Islamic state is. Sunni in Iraq are more comfortable under the Islamic state's rule than they are trusting and comfortable under the rule of their own government. The war in Iraq is not going to stop until you get political settlement on that. Um, So I do have a couple of pieces of good news about Iraq, though. Uh, The first is that this storming of the parliament, um, this is for you. (laughs) This storming of the parliament is actually not a terrible thing. It's kind of a good thing because you know what? They were demanding transparency in government and an end of political corruption. Um, Also, if you happen to YouTube any videos of it and speak any Arabic, what they are shouting is, no more Iran in Iraq. That's a positive sign for us. Moreover, the demands of the main Shiite... uh, um, the main Shiite opposition, so Shia are the majority in Iraq, the Sunni are the minority, but had ruled the country under Saddam Hussein. Uh, the, the split among the Shia, Muqtada al-Sadr, who's leading the protesters, um, are demanding a government of technocrats. How's that for a revolutionary fervor, my friends? They are demanding good government. Um, and... And that's how you get to a better Iraq, that, that we need to help them make progress on that count. Now to the even sadder part of our defense challenges, which are Syria. The government of Bashar al-Assad has been barrel bombing cities like Aleppo, which you see in this picture. Uh, the latest estimate that I have seen, the, the UN stopped counting at 250,000 dead Syrians. The number is now almost certainly double that. Um, there are children in Syria who have never eaten fruit, and they're five years old, um, because there is so much uh, warfare around them. Moreover, the Obama administration uh, decided that limiting Bashar al-Assad's use of chemical weapons was going to be our major uh, security contribution to the war in Iraq. Since the agreement that Secretary Kerry signed, there have been 161 chemical weapons attacks of both sarin gas and chlorine in Syria since the deal. A million five hundred thousand people dead by chemical weapons use since that deal. The Director of Central Intelligence uh, just said Uh, in testimony two days ago that we need to add some urgency to the fight in Syria because of the domestic terrorist backlash. And you may have read in the newspaper two days ago that Secretary Kerry has now given Bashar al-Assad 90 days, a new red line, 90 days for Bashar al-Assad to come up with a plan whereby he will leave power. Bashar al-Assad's answer to that was to send a telegram to Moscow assuring the Russians that his government would fight to final victory and extermination. President Obama, in the Atlantic interviews that he gave, uh, said that his proudest moment of his presidency 
was walking away from the red line he had drawn for Syria. He said it was his moment of liberation from establishment thinking about it. Um, and that there is no military solution in Syria. And uh, it's true that in every war, the, the only military solution is fighting to complete extinction of your adversary. So it is true that there's no military solution to war. But the reason people fight wars is because you change the political dynamic of the conflict that's going on. And we are the only party to the negotiations over Syria who believes there is no military solution to this problem. Everybody else is working for military solutions to this problem. Meanwhile, John Kerry is negotiating with the Russians. There are no Syrians who are party to the negotiations over the ceasefire in Syria, and we are unwilling to enforce that ceasefire. So not surprisingly, there's no ceasefire. Um, which takes us to Russia, uh, the next source of defense challenge for us, because Russia's intervention in Syria two months ago, three months ago, uh, saved the Assad government. Like The important message to take from Russia's intervention was that Bashar al-Assad was about to lose the war against the rebels. Russia's intervention propped him up, um, and uh, the John Kerry tried to to put a smiley face emoji on the Russian intervention by saying that they can, they can control Assad. They can manage his demands in a way that makes a stable peace possible. Um, in fact, what has happened is Bashar al-Assad has increased his demands. This fight to total extinction was not his negotiating position three months ago. So to the Russians, this is a picture of Palmyra in Syria, um, a, a, a Roman ruin of great beauty that uh, parts of which were exploded by the Islamic State when they took it over. With Russian help, the Syrians have retaken it. And last night, a Russian orchestra flown in from Moscow along with all of those Russian soldiers you see in the audience, were also flown in from Moscow to play a concert in Palmyra, um, uh, just to show who is actually in charge of what's happening in the Middle East and, and how engaged the Russians are. Uh, the Russians have 7,000 troops still in Ukraine. The good news is that it takes the Russian army 7,000 troops, and they don't have full control of the Donbass in Ukraine. So the Ukrainian army, which is actually not very good, is doing a pretty good job against the Russians. And, and that's non-trivial. Uh, but the, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, its invasion of Georgia, the threats that they um, have to their immediate neighbors are part of a bigger pattern um, in which Russian incursions into the airspace and waters of NATO countries have tripled in the last year. There have been 39 incidents near military misses between Russian and NATO forces in the last year. This is violations of airspace in which, for example, the British had to scramble fighters to keep Russian bombers out of their airspace. Um, in, 
narrowly avoided mid-air collisions. Several of you saw the Russian fighter planes turning over American ships in the Baltic. A lot of those kind of of close encounters at sea. The good news of this, though, is that uh, the United States is actually very active in the Baltic Sea right now. One of the things the Obama administration has done slowly but very well is beginning to reassure Europeans. In part, this comes uh, because so much of this activity is actually under the Defense Department's ability to control. So we have more ships in the Baltic. We have a NATO air policing mission going on over the Baltic states. But, back to the bad news, um, you may have noticed that Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter was in Stuttgart a few days ago and proudly announced that the United States was going to rotate 4,500 troops through the Baltic states as a response to Russia's uh, threats against the Baltic states. On that same day, Vladimir Putin announced the permanent stationing of 40,000 additional Russian troops along the border of the Baltic states. Um, uh, so, so our bet has been raised. Um, moreover, it's not just that the Russians are, are threatening a new way of war uh, as they view it, uh, but they're also, you know, conducting the old ways of war. The British foreign minister uh, released information proving that the Russians not only hit hospitals in Syria, they targeted hospitals in Syria. Once they hit them, they went back when when first responders, when emergency people uh, were rushing to the hospital to protect people. And yesterday, the Russians targeted a refugee camp in Syria, killing about 40 people. Uh, The good news is that Russia's ability to continue doing this kind of stuff is limited. Their economy contracted by 2% of GDP. Last year, many of you probably saw in the paper that they are now having to bail out their major banks because because of the sanctions against Russia, uh, they can't get dollars. They can't get liquidity for their banks. Um, 22 million Russians now live in poverty. That's up 50% in the last two years. Um, And it's not just the price of oil or the sanctions that we put on over their um, invasion of Ukraine, but it is also structural problems with the Russian economy. They cannot figure out how to diversify away from oil. All that said, Vladimir Putin has an 80% approval rating. We do not just have a Vladimir Putin problem. We have a Russia problem. Uh, Next up is China. Uh, This little picture is from the South China Sea, where the Chinese are busy building artificial islands. Uh, You may recall that they grabbed Scarborough Shoal from the Philippines four years ago. They're building artificial islands. They're building uh, landing strips. They're building missile launchers. They're building lighthouses. They are, as you would say, creating facts on the ground. Admiral Harris, the American commander in the Pacific, said, if you don't believe the Chinese are making aggressive military moves in the South China Sea, you would have to believe the earth is flat. Um, And there's a potential flashpoint coming in the next three months, which is the Philippines. The government of the Philippines is something incredibly smart. And when you think about how to use international institutions to advantage, 
The Filipinos did a great thing. They took the case over Scarborough Shoal to the UN tribunal in, in The Hague for adjudication. Um, and the decision's going to come down this summer. If the Philippines win that decision, uh, Admiral Harris was overheard by a journalist being asked by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, are we going to have to fight the Chinese over Scarborough Shoals this fall? Um, so it's very much on the mind of the American military as a growing challenge. Uh, next up, Europe. Uh, if I were to assign a probability, what this is is the polling figures for whether Britain should leave the European Union. And whatever you think about whether about the European Union or whether Britain should be in it, I would encourage you to think about it in um, strictly from an American point of view. Europeans are not just some of our best friends in the world. They are the people who best help us do what we want to do in the world. And a Europe that is consumed with the questions of the EU coming apart is a Europe that is going to be much less willing or able to help us do what we want to do in the world. Moreover, it's not just going to be, if the British vote to leave, it's not just going to be the Britain problem. Because Scotland will, Scotland will hold another referendum and the United Kingdom will come ununited. Um, and that will set off the Catalans and the Basques in Spain. You will see secessionist movements uh, from around Europe. Uh, moreover, the, the, one of the terrible consequences of not solving the problems in Syria in Syria is a million refugees floating to Europe's shores, which are not only a near-term problem for those governments to figure out what to do about, but uh, it will, over the long term, focus those societies inward as they figure out how to manage the social and domestic consequences of that. Um, as one uh, measure of just how nervous the Europeans are about these changes, they made a, a very shaky deal with the government of Turkey to pay the Turks $6.6 .6 billion if the Turks would stop letting people come through Turkey to get to Europe. Um, and uh, what, uh, so they got $6.6 billion, and they also were promised visa-free travel from Turkey to the European Union. Uh, you may have read in the newspaper yesterday, the British prime minister just refused to honor that pledge because he's afraid if he agrees to it, they will lose the referendum. Um, so, so the internal focus of the European Union is, is a problem for us because they have less bandwidth for the kinds of things we actually want their help on in the world. So I'm going to stop there with major international problems that have defense effects and shift a little bit to uh, the internal. Let me just point out that I did not even get to Hamas firing rockets into Israel yesterday, the Turkish president firing his prime minister, which is not supposed to be possible under the Constitution. 40% of Afghanistan is now ruled by the Taliban, and the CIA estimates that there are 30,000 al-Qaeda fighters in Afghanistan. There were 3,000 in 2001. 
North Korea uh, may very well yet today test a nuclear weapon because they're big once every 30 years uh, political contest that is supposed to make their leader more secure in power is occurring. And they have tried to test ballistic missiles several times uh, in the last month, and they, it, none of the tests have succeeded. So the good news is the North Koreans aren't very good at this. The bad news is they may well be good enough. Um, and lastly, on my, on my sad but true list, is Admiral Clapper, or General Clapper, the Director of National Intelligence, testified last week that Paris-type attacks by ISIS are now possible in the United States, that they have the ability, and that far from the tide of war receding, the Director of National Intelligence testified that we will be, quote, in a perpetual state of repression against terrorism. That is, not only are we still at war, we are going to be for as far as the Director of National Intelligence can see. Um, So what I mean to convey by all of that is that the international order is getting frayed, that threats and risks are increasing, um, but that our resources have not. This is the defense spending trend. You can see budget sequestration go into effect. Um, <laughs> the, many of you may have read uh, Admiral Gary Roughhead's terrific piece in Victor's uh, Strategica, this last issue, in which he talks about the fact that we don't just have a top-line problem, which is, Uh, As many of you know, I'm incredibly cheap, and I almost always think we can cut defense spending. And I still think we can cut defense spending because as long as we continue to have two fixed-wing manned aircraft programs of record, the F-22 and the F-35, I think we have too much money in the defense budget. But the argument that Gary makes, um, and, and I do as well, is that the all-volunteer force is rapidly becoming unaffordable. So if you aren't going to spend more money than this on defense, you absolutely need to let DOD manage its money and manage its people much more freely than the Congress has permitted them to do. Um, The most important place we could change where we are spending money in the defense budget um, is on the people. Arnold Panaro, who is a a Marine general who ran the Defense Business Board, uh, is fond of saying that we are well on our way to having (laughs) the American military be a benefits company that occasionally kills a terrorist. That what you see in the defense budget is the exact same problem that we have in the federal budget writ large, which is the entitlement programs are crowding out the discretionary spending for training, for innovation, for the kinds of programs that we have. We need to fix this. Um, The service chiefs have been asking for the last five years running for Congress to give them latitude to stop giving pay raises to folks in the military and to spend that money on training. And Congress has not agreed. Uh, The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as a result of the sequestration, which made them take 10% across the board of every program instead of being able to spend their money 
uh, in ways that they most wanted, has given the highest assessment of risk since that was instituted in 1985. So every four years, the Quadrennial Defense Review comes out with a strategy and the forces that go with it. And by law, the chairman is required to give his assessment of, can we do this? Can we carry this out? What is the risk associated with it? The chairman has never given a higher risk associated with it than this last one. And General Milley, the, the Army Chief of Staff, testified last week that he, his, in his judgment, there is very high risk associated with our ability to fight a conventional war. He said, we are good at the counterterrorism stuff, at the counterinsurgency. He worries very much about our ability to do the high-end conventional war stuff because he has not had the money to train to it. Um, Moreover, we are importing risk into our military. Let me just say, I, I did an unsystematic study of, of the division commanders and their deputies in the Army. Ask them to tell me the breakdown of how much of their time do their captains and majors spend preparing their soldiers to fight versus dealing with the administrative necessities of their jobs Anybody care to guess? Uh, you, are, you are too pessimistic, my friend. It's 20%. But, but that means that commanders are spending 80% of their time figuring out how you are going to put women in combat units, figuring out uh, how to... All of the things, all of the administrative burdens many of which are very good and virtuous things, but they are not what we have a military to do. And we are not, being, we are not having an open and above-board conversation about the risk we are importing into our military as a result of this. As some of you may know, Jim Mattis and I uh, just finished writing a book that Hoover Press is putting out in, I think it comes out in July. And... We did the biggest survey of American public attitudes that had been done since 9-11. And uh, as a result of that data, commissioned a series of papers by, by the people we learned from on defense policy. And the really striking thing, the thing that alarmed everybody most, is that the American public has uh, outsourced its interest in defense policy to our military itself. And we are not listening when, for example, uh, all of the service chiefs try and tell us about the risk that we are bringing into our force. That's the biggest defense policy threat that we face. For all of the risks you see around the international landscape, our biggest problem is actually us. Uh, I'll skip past that. To Victor, this is for you. Um, the last thing I will say is that um, the president really doesn't understand how to use military force well. And yes, this weekend's New York Times magazine will give you an incredibly discouraging uh, window into that. This is a picture of the guy sitting at the desk is Ben Rhodes. He's the deputy national security advisor. Um, and he was, uh, 
He is President Obama's most trusted foreign policy advisor. So, so Jim Mattis will be sent out of the room so the president can, could talk to Ben Rhodes. And let me just give you a quote from the article. He's lost the New York Times, uh, Ben Rhodes. His lack of conventional real-world experience of the kind that normally precedes responsibility for the fate of nations, like military or diplomatic service, or even a master's degree in international relations rather than creative writing, is still startling. So President Obama made a big deal out of having a, a cabinet, you know, a team of rivals. But in fact, this is where he is taking his advice. And um, we have incurred a set of risks that are going to be very costly to reverse. Everyone I know hasn't heard America's allies this worried about us or their security because they rely on us in their professional life. And on that cheerful note, my friends, I will be glad to take any questions or objections you have. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.